0: Specific antioxidants like vitamin E or A or beta-carotene are actually increasing cancer rates and shortening life Most people are still not aware of that and they're still taking it. Human OS.
1: Learn. Master. Achieve. Okay, Professor Mike Garista, welcome to Human West Radio. I've been aware of your work since your seminal findings looking at the effects of antioxidants on the effects of exercise, and I'd like to get into that more in a moment. Generally, your work is looking at the cellular bioenergetics and how cells produce energy. In particular, a very in-depth look at mitochondria. So I look forward to a discussion on that today. But to start off, perhaps we can go back to that seminal work looking at the effects of antioxidants on exercise. So tell me what the prevailing thesis was at the time about how antioxidants were good for for exercise and for the body.
0: Back then I was mainly working on diabetes and getting more and more into mitochondria, these little organelles that produce energy in the cell. And what we observed is that activating mitochondria would improve blood sugar and uh, essentially have an anti-diabetic activity. Now, what I always was confused during those years was that activating mitochondria produces more oxidative stress or reactive oxygen species than downregulating mitochondria. So the conundrum was how can an increase in oxidative stress ameliorate a metabolic disease like diabetes, but also other diseases. So the idea that arose back then is maybe reactive oxygen species do something that is not entirely harmful. But rather health-promoting. We weren't the only people observing that. There were other labs that also had early experimental evidence for that, but everyone was kind of hesitant to really nail it down and to make the claim uh, that there, there is a function for reactive oxygen species.
1: Can you tell more details about the subjects that were used and the protocol?
0: Okay, so the current state back then is free radicals are bad and antioxidants, namely vitamin E or vitamin C that inactivates free radicals would, improve health. And that has been around for at least four decades. It started in the late 1950s and increasingly got prevalent in the 70s, 80s, and everyone of us knows. So what we did, based on the possibility that these free radicals have some health-promoting functions, we did a clinical study based on lab work, uh, which we did before. But this clinical study consisted of 40 mid-20-year-old men, and we randomly subdivided them into two groups. Uh, one group would receive a cocktail of antioxidants on a daily basis, and the other group would receive a so-called placebo, which is identical-looking pills but containing no antioxidants at all. And these 40 people then underwent a exercise regimen over four weeks on a daily basis except for Sundays, and we took samples before they started this and afterwards. And the idea was to test whether the health-promoting effects of exercise would be influenced by antioxidants, and the placebo or control group essentially was the group where we would anticipate to not having any impact by these builds. So the outcome in brief was that exercise is healthy. So it promotes all types of parameters that are known to be associated with longevity. So blood glucose went down and cholesterol. However, the group that would be on antioxidants, we did not see any effects of exercise, or at least the effects were strongly reduced. So the unexpected conclusion was antioxidants interfere with the health promoting effects of exercise the conclusion mechanistically being the free radicals that are produced during exercise are really the cause for exercise being healthy
1: and this became a global news story because it was so counter to what people had expected at the time the thesis had been prior to that that antioxidants would reduce the damage which actually would help people have a greater training effect but this seemed to be the opposite so what were some of the molecular Mediators of the effects of exercise that were then inhibited in the presence of antioxidants.
0: Since this was a human study, there are quite a few limitations to really study that in depth. But what we observed sure. during that study that there's certain previously established transcription factors and coactivators. One is called PGC1-alpha that is activated by exercise uh, that was known for a long time. It was also known that free radicals may activate that. And what we could show is that in the presence of antioxidants, uh, this factor was not activated or activated to a reduced tent. So that is one explanation mechanistically But really, the real mechanistic basis, we and others then did in other model organisms. We like to work with small worms who are easier to study and so forth. But there is so-called molecular switches that respond to free radicals. They get activated and then they downstream activate further mechanisms, especially defense mechanisms, not only against oxidative stress, but also against other stressors, against DNA damage and so forth.
1: So when we exercise, we are increasing the flux of energy that's going through the mitochondria that produces more reactive oxygen species. And those reactive oxygen species are actually good because they trigger a series of molecular mechanisms that not only help to improve physical functioning, the exercise response, but also have secondary health benefits that are a direct result of the stress that is induced from the exercise. That's absolutely accurate. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the timing of the antioxidants relative to when the exercise occurred. Was that consistent? Mm -hmm.
0: That was pretty consistent, but there are follow-up studies in different regimen and timings. And if you want to summarize that, essentially there is a number of studies that observe pretty much the exact same effect that we observed. And then there's other studies that did not consistently see that antioxidants would impair the training effects, but there is not a single study showing that mm-hmm. antioxidants would help at all. So mm-hmm. I think it's pretty irrelevant when the antioxidant you take, be it before or after and cause that probably does not make a difference. It mm. may have some positive effect I'm unsure, we have not done that but there is some literature that during a long distance race like a marathon, potentially antioxidants before could have an effect. The evidence is not great but I don't want to leave that completely out. So for people who want to increase fitness or muscle mass or endurance, there. There's multiple studies out there, and they pretty consistently say either it has no effect, or if there is an effect, it's a rather harmful effect.
1: The key questions for me were about timing, the effects of different types of people that were doing the protocol. Are they young and healthy or are they old and possibly have some metabolic derangement? And then also, what is the magnitude or the actual training? So is it heavyweight training or is it endurance? And do you get to the point where you're producing so many free radicals through really long, extensive exercise, then the antioxidants could have a benefit. But how would you know how to mediate that? Hard to predict, I'd say.
0: There is different studies out in the literature that have addressed subsets of your questions, but especially... Agree with the elderly people exercising. There is very little literature on that. And I could very well imagine that there may be different observations from what we see in young people, but that's pure speculation. So I can't exclude that, but again, evidence yeah. is ours.
1: Had any work been done since then that's looked to augment the training effect by increasing amount of reactive oxygen species? I know that arachidonic acid had been looked in some uh-huh. circles.
0: Yeah. that's an excellent question. And the answer is uh, implicitly yes. Explicitly no. Let me explain that. There are quite a few compounds that have been tested in regards to increasing exercise performance. And they have different names, including exercise mimetics. So they mimic training. So you don't train, but, but you still make your body think you would have trained. So your capacity increases and so forth. And, and quite of these compounds, which are effective to different extents, but there's a few around, include the so-called polyphenols. Polyphenols are compounds found in many plants and in especially also fruits and berries. And these compounds, to a limited extent, but quite successfully, have such an effect now we know from other studies, more basic science-oriented studies on the exact same compounds, that they indeed increase reactive oxygen species in cells or model organisms. So if you put these seemingly independent evidences together, that would imply there are compounds that are known to increase oxidative stress and that are independently known to increase exercise performance. So in my world, that would mean compounds that to a limited extent increase oxidative stress could um,
1: also be used as mediators for increased exercise performance. That seems to be a confusing thing in the literature. So what polyphenols and other plant substances are called antioxidants, but they're really antioxidant producing compounds because they're actually stressful, the xenohormetics. And yet they're all called antioxidants. And that I think does a disservice to clarity. Seems you you got
0: very thoroughly prepared for this meeting. Yes, it's it's, no because almost no one knows that. But what you say is exactly right. There's a huge confusion about what I call primary antioxidants. And this includes vitamin E and vitamin C and so-called secondary antioxidants. These are compounds like polyphenols, which are not directly inactivating reactive oxygen species but rather they induce a stress response in the cell or in the human body that prepares us to be for in a better defense state against oxidative stress so in the long run this will lead to lower levels of oxidative stress during normal life, but also exercise based on the fact that we exposed ourselves to compounds that increase oxidative stress for a short period of time and repeatedly by ingesting them on a daily basis or twice a week or whatever.
1: On the subject of some of the mediators of positive benefits on production of endogenous antioxidants, superoxide dismutase 1 and 2, and glutathione peroxidase, and mediators of insulin sensitivity like PPAR gamma and PPAR gamma coactivators, talking about exercise memetics, PQQ seems to mediate its effects through activation of PGC1-alpha, like taking in polyphenols across a lifespan would be good for somebody to have across their whole life, or is it something that becomes increasingly beneficial once somebody reaches a certain age?
0: Personally, I've not been working on PQQ, but I'm aware of this and related compounds like Q10, and they directly interact with the exact place where free radicals are formed in the cell also during exercise. Mm. And the exact mechanism of action is not established, but it's quite possible that interfering with mitochondrial electron transfer by compounds like PQQ, we also alter production of reactive oxygen species. So it's quite possible that this is, again, the same effect as with polyphenols and and things we talked about before.
1: I've heard you mention the benefits of glucosamine on longevity. What is glucosamine typically used for and what is your opinion about its efficacy there? And then what are you excited about glucosamine for relative to longevity and cellular health?
0: So glucosamine is a normal intermediate of a breakdown of glucose in the human body. So it's naturally produced, but only in very little amounts. It's very similar to sugar, but it does not provide energy and it's not causing obesity. It's been in use by humans for many decades to restore joint health. So the idea is that glucosamine could increase cartilage mass and cartilage growth. So if you feel like your knees are not working properly during running, taking glucosamine for a long period of time was like the standard application to improve that. Now, there have been quite a few large controlled studies on whether glucosamine is really effective there, as previously indicated the placebo control. So there was really an objective measure. And the outcome is not really clear. And I personally think the evidence is shaky. However, what has been established by millions of people taking glucosamine is it is totally harmless. So there is no side effects. And people take it for years and at least they don't suffer any damage. B, it certainly may impact their willingness to exercise, which is a side effect, but certainly important. And C, there are data from over 80,000 people that would live in Washington State, and they have been observed on whether glucosamine would decrease their risk of dying. So it's a large population, you can quantify the likelihood to die. What turned out to be the case is that those people who took glucosamine had about 20% reduced risk of dying as compared to those people who would not take it, which is huge. So the healthy eating rarely exerts effects more than 15%. So this is an observational study, which is not a proof really that glucosamine is the cause. But in addition to our data in worms and mice, where glucosamine very consistently extends lifespan, it's a very good support for this supplement being potentially very useful. What are the mechanisms
1: by which glucosamine is exerting its effects?
0: Yeah, so what glucosamine is doing, it interferes with the breakdown of glucose. So we we know glucose is a component of all sugars, and a sugar is something that provides energy to the cell in a manner that is independent of the mitochondria. Mitochondria are the places where a lot of energy is converted. However, providing a lot of sugar as a nutrient essentially shuts off the mitochondria because they're not required anymore. So by Contrast exercise, for example, depends on the mitochondria, at least exercise that lasts longer than two, three minutes. So what exercise is doing is forcing the mitochondria into activity. What sugar is doing is shutting down mitochondria. Having said that, what glucosamine is doing is interfering with this mitochondria-independent energy provision. So what the organism has to do when it's on glucosamine, it is forced to activate its mitochondria like it is when it exercises. And the idea is to mimic a carbohydrate-reduced diet by providing glucosamine. So whoever takes glucosamine is not capable of fully metabolizing carbohydrates and, and, and sugar anymore, and in turn switches to mitochondrial metabolism, which is more focused on fatty acids and so forth, and that's the idea again what it comes down to is mitochondria producing small amounts of free radicals and that's what we see in animals is the cause for increased longevity
1: okay most people take glucosamine for joint health the effects on joint health are suspect but one thing that has been clearly shown is that it's safe most interestingly though are the geroprotecting effects that associate with its usage people that take glucosamine have comparatively a 20 percent reduction in premature mortality And the way it might be working is by inhibiting glycolysis, forcing more energy production to occur through the mitochondria instead of through glucose-metabolizing pathways when you are metabolizing carbohydrates. When you do this, glucosamine has an exercise mimetic effect, causing more free radicals to be produced and initiating the downstream benefits of that hormetic stimuli. What about other glycolysis inhibitors like xylitol or chitin? Would you be inhibiting glycolysis too much if you're taking all of these glycolysis inhibitors? I think
0: the compounds you just mentioned, Chitin and and others, have been less well studied. The other compound that has been studied in detail is deoxyglucose, which has been used in cancer therapy since the 1970s. But deoxyglucose is very difficult to to dose and it becomes toxic when you overdose it. So that is not a choice. Chitin and other things that are on the market, systematically, to my knowledge, they have not been studied. I cannot exclude that they may be helpful, but the evidence at least to what I know is very limited. However, I think it might be worth studying them a bit more in detail.
1: We just published a blog last week on eating bugs and how there's over 2,000 different cultures around the world that eat bugs and many different species of them. And chitin, for the listener, is part of the exoskeleton. And so it probably was just a regular part of the human diet, even though the the evidence, like you said, is fairly scarce. It's a newer idea for Western worlds to think about bugs as a healthy source of food. I'll put
0: that on my list. All right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. About glucosamine, similar to the questions about antioxidants, the timing of antioxidants relative to exercise, what about? The timing of glucosamine do you have any visibility into how much we need to be taking per day to get the effect that was seen in the washington study and does timing matter so would you want to have glucosamine let's say before a meal so that is inhibiting glycolysis
0: that's difficult to answer with the animal experiments we would just provide it through the food so whenever they would eat they would automatically eat a certain portion of their daily allowance of glucosamine. So certainly that doesn't work for humans. However, there are no systematic studies in humans on longevity or lifespan with glucosamine. The upset washing study I just cited was observational. So we don't even know when people took it. What really needs to be done is a controlled intervention trial where people are systematically given either placebo or glucosamine in a defined dose on a defined time of the day and then wait for... Or 10 or 15 years and see what the incidence of diseases is, what the mortality is. This, of course, is very expensive and time consuming. Mm. Plus, it is not so interesting for the industry since yeah. glucosamine is difficult to patent and, like, the financial impact is limited from an industrial viewpoint. So, we are talking to people who might fund that and in, in institutions, but it's a long run, which not only implies to glucosamine, metformin in the US, the large study that has been scheduled and approved by the FDA faces the same problems. So nobody really wants to finance it, right? We should emphasize something here. It's not about living longer. It's about extending the period of life where you are healthy, without really affecting the total lifespan. More like the quality of life improves and that is good for the individual, but more importantly, healthcare costs drastically decrease if one of these interventions would work systematically in humans. So the societal impact would be huge by reducing health costs by up to 80%. There's uh, colleagues who've calculated that 80, percent while the individual quality of life would, there's almost no intervention in society that is good for the individual as is good for the entire society. So I think health insurers, but also governments, should be very aware of this and also uh, think about this to actually fund studies like this and then also support people participating in, in such type of studies.
1: I am interested to see if we can extend maximum human lifespan. That's going to take, I think, technology that is beyond our capability now. But for now, as David Katz says, have more life in your years and disability. Yeah, yeah. The societal cost is massive, but the the cost of the individual is huge. You just get to live a better life for longer. And we all want that. So let's switch gears. Talking a little bit more about the relative quality of the different mitochondrial targeted antioxidants and how to best determine how they're good. Because we have different types. We talked a little bit about PQQ. There's now been more interest in something called MitoQ. Uh, Coenzyme Q10 has been used for quite a long time. It's fairly popular. There's methylene blue. And so when you're assessing the impact of a potential mitochondrial affecting agent, what are the things that you look look for, think would be a good way to intervene without disrupting or interrupting the processes that we also want to have happen by stimulating the mitochondrial biogenesis.
0: I'm naturally aware of all these compounds. Some of them have been studied in detail in regards to their exact mechanism. Others, we don't actually know how they function, and quite a few of these compounds target a subunit within the mitochondria that is known to produce small amounts of free radicals when partly inhibited. And that's the so-called complex one of the electron transfer chain. But essentially, this very important part of the mitochondria is very sensitive to exogenous compounds. And many compounds have been shown to act exactly there. Also compounds where you would not ever imagine that this is happening. Uh, One very interesting observation, for example, is that the most famous group of cholesterol the so-called statins, they very effectively have an inhibiting effect on this part of the mitochondria. So does metformin and so do many other compounds. And quite a few of those compounds that are on the market to specifically target the mitochondria may either work through this mechanism or mechanisms closely related to that. So I'm not saying there is a established common denominator, but I'm pretty sure it will emerge within the next five to 10 years to always come down to a very similar proof of uh, principle, right?
1: Yeah, interesting. And have you had a chance to look into methylene blue much?
0: No, I haven't. But not because I don't find it interesting. It's more like it was not too much related to our initial focus on energy metabolism. But I think it's a promising compound. And I am aware of ongoing studies elsewhere that may look very promising. Of course, I can't really talk about that. But from what's published, it is certainly interesting.
1: So we've talked about exercise mimetics. Are there any calorie restriction mimetics that you feel are promising? And so things like nicotinamide, riboside, or oxaloacetate. What is your opinion about those calorie restriction mimetics?
0: Anything dealing with the nicotinamide NAD metabolism certainly is a very valid target and yeah. this is related to a group of proteins called sirtuins and sirtuins are well established to have a huge impact on aging processes and also occurrence of these diseases and so forth. Now the real compound is NAD plus which is a essential cofactor for these sirtuins. NAD plus unfortunately is very unstable so you can't store it at home and if you swallow it, it'll never reach the cell because it will decay so what different labs and, and subsequent companies have done is look for precursors or intermediates that in the end get converted into NAD plus in the cell and get active there. And there is a number of potential compounds out there, nicotinic acid works, nicotinamide works, both of which are out there for at least five decades. The newer ones, dimide riboside and others, essentially do a similar thing. And there's lots of debate which are more efficient and more directly going to the cell. A comparative study precisely addressing that is lacking. But to sum that up, Whatever deals with NAD metabolism, I totally approve and for some of these compounds would be great to have a few more larger human studies that address that in a proper scientific way with control groups. But again, the same restraints as previously mentioned for glucosamine or metformin also apply here. So it's not a criticism, it's just scientifically speaking, this is lacking. So... Other compounds that interfere with not only nutrient metabolism but could mimic calorie restriction are out there. Some of them have been studied in mice, but are also applied in humans. So, if we want to do that systematically, there is a compound called arcabose, uh, which is a drug that is swallowed and that prevents enzymes in our gut to release the sugar from carbohydrates. So the consequence is you can eat a pizza or tons of pasta, but the sugar contained within will not ever reach your blood and the inside of your body, but will rather be excreted through the guts. This is very efficient in avoiding carbohydrate overload. Mm. The problem being the bacteria in the gut love carbohydrates and they produce lots of gas from that. And you can imagine Mm. that the side effects are socially not too compatible. So (laughs) that's a problem. A new drug that may be promising but has not been studied in this regard is increasing the excretion of glucose through the urine. It's already been used to treat type two diabetes and the positive side effect is that the body loses energy by losing glucose instead of metabolizing. Mm. So it lowers blood sugar and it causes loss of energy through urine. And since it's a pretty brand new drug, it will need to be seen whether this is functional as a restriction mimetic but I would think it could be promising so we'll see about that
1: and that's a drug uh, that's drug that. um, okay.
0: and then of course there's shifting your eating regimen I personally think that carbohydrates are overrated by the official nutritional recommendations
1: mm-hmm. I mean
0: nowadays it's still around 50% should be carbohydrates I don't mind carbohydrates as long as they contain lots of fiber and as long as we or our gut takes a long time to metabolize it but unfortunately, most carbohydrates are not in that state, but rather in a sugary or processed pasta or whatever state. And that definitely is a problem. And there's lots of evidence on that. So replacing carbohydrates by high fiber or low carbohydrate components always is a good idea, as long as you don't replace it with red meat or something, because the red meat has other disadvantages that would totally destroy the effect of reducing carbohydrates. And then there is lots of not so well studied components that may interfere with nutrient metabolism within the body, but I think the relevant ones we've been uh, discussing already.
1: So are most of the mechanisms that we're discussing here, either through calorie restriction, carb reduction, or exercise, do they have a common place where they meet? It sounds like many of them are still acting really on the same energetic pathways, but doing so in slightly different ways or really the same way once you kind of get farther enough down the biochemical chain?
0: So, I think quite a few of these interventions essentially target voluntarily or involuntarily the mitochondria yeah.
1: where we started off,
0: and the majority of those within the mitochondria produces ROS signals that cause the effect. Not all, but quite a few. Mm-hmm. Then a rather independent set of interventions is in the range of NAD+, and nicotinamide, the related compounds, though they also interact with mitochondria, but there's quite a few effects that are independent of the mitochondrial pathways. And then there's effects where we still don't really know how they act, but certainly they do. And that includes quite a few genes and ways to activate genes without us really knowing how this is happening. But that's a big matter of debate. And of course, there's quite a bit of research going on in this area.
1: Two more compounds to discuss, ergothionine and then angiotensin tooth blockade. Do you think that those are providing anything novel relative to what we're speaking about? Or is it, again, just another way to get at what we've discussed?
0: I'm not sure, but I have to say that my knowledge on these specific compounds is limited, and I would rather refrain from judgmental comments on that. There's so many potentially promises and compounds on there. For me as a scientist, it's always like, show me the evidence, show me in be it tiny worms so that they profit from getting these compounds, and then ideally some human study that quantifies a evidence on that. And again, it's not blaming companies not doing that. I know it's difficult and expensive, but really, before we can judge whether it's worth trying or not, I think that is required. As long as we can be sure there is no harm done by whatever compound it is, it would be totally okay that people just try it out and see whether it works without having proof for that. When it becomes difficult, like with certain antioxidants, I'm opposed to that And public knowledge for 15 years now that specific antioxidants like vitamin E or A or beta-carotene are actually increasing cancer rates and shortening lifespan. Most people are still not aware of that and they're still taking it. and Again, it's not like they are harmless and just not having the effect. The problem is they have a detectable increase in mortality rates, cancer rates, and that's
1: a problem that should be conveyed. Do you think that the natural amounts that we find in food, if we're eating natural amounts, then we're fine? Or should we be careful to actually even consume foods that contain high amounts?
0: not at all. Don't get me wrong here. What we talk about is is active supplementation with normal to large doses of specific antioxidants. By contrast, whatever food you could imagine never contains amounts of antioxidants that come even close to what is contained in supplements. What we just should remember is food's are not healthy because they can contain antioxidants, and especially vegetables and certain fruits are not healthy because of that, this happens independent of that. I'm pretty sure if there was a way to produce an apple or carrot or a broccoli not containing antioxidants, it would be as healthy or maybe even slightly healthier. But again, uh, the reason why fruits and vegetables are totally advised and totally health-promoting are not mediated by antioxidants, they are mediated by other things in there, including polyphenols as we talked about earlier, and people should not at all stay away from them. What they should stay away from is supplements that contain certain antioxidants. I'm not opposed to any type of supplements, as you may have realized. There's also certain vitamins that are health-promoting, but vitamin A, E, beta-carotene certainly do not belong in there.
1: So if you're looking for, let's say, a multivitamin, it might be better to just look for one that has more of a multimineral.
0: It is very difficult to be undernourished with vitamins and micronutrients in a Western society. There are certain supplements I totally endorse. For example, vitamin D, especially in winter when there's a little sunlight. Also for especially women at the age beyond 40 to prevent osteoporosis. That's all good. Also for children. And then there's other things like folic acid for women who may become pregnant. They should take it before they become pregnant when they start it. Once they know it's too late anyway. So totally okay. Selenium, big debate in North America. I would stay away from that. Enjoy. Europe, very different situation. There is too little selenium in the soil. So in Europe, I would promote it. So, but you really have to go for the details. Zinc, yeah. same thing. Zinc is known to protect from flu and things. Studies supporting that. Would I take zinc on a regular basis for that reason? No. Same for magnesium. Muscle cramps get ameliorated by magnesium. If you have cramps, take it. Supplement it on a regular basis. Why? What for? So I personally think there, there is no reason to have a general supplement on a daily basis except for in certain subgroups, vitamin D, which in most studies really has been proven to be a good thing.
1: There's the idea that if something's good for you, then more is better, but Mm -hmm. going back to the idea of getting most of your nutrients from whole foods is a very smart idea, and yet at the same time, there do seem to be some things that make sense to supplement with, as we're discussing. One other thing that was not mentioned so far, are there other minerals that you feel are interesting, like lithium for lifespan?
0: We've been working on lithium in the past a bit, and also others, including Gordon Lithko at the Buck Institute
1: yeah. in
0: Northern California. And we both independently observed that lithium in our worms extends lifespan. What we did then in a collaboration with a Japanese group was the Japanese colleagues had published a study where they correlated suicide rate with lithium concentration in normal tap water. And what they observed is that the more lithium people have through tap water, the less likely they are to commit suicide. Now, lithium since the 1920s has been used to treat psychiatric disease. And the idea of Japanese colleagues was providing a little lithium through drinking water inadvertently may make you happy and prevent suicide. So very interesting, but we thought, oh great, they not only have suicide rates, but they probably also have mortality rates or average lifespan. So what they analyzed based on the same data set was the link between lithium concentration of drinking water and average lifespan. And indeed, the more lithium in drinking water there is, the more likely are you personally to reach a certain age. Now, again, this is not people supplementing lithium. This was lithium contained in drinking water. And since then, I occasionally get emails, people asking, oh, there is this mineral water from some Italian known that has a high lithium concentration. Do you think I live longer if I drink? And I can't tell you, but there is a certain chance to do that. There was another follow-up study from a large population in Texas seeing the exact same things as was seen in Japan. This is interesting because genetically people in Texas are quite heterogeneous and definitely distinct from Japan. So it seems to apply to different populations, but we are far from saying, okay, there should be a low dose lithium supplementation to promote longevity. Is this a possibility? Maybe, Maybe. Mm. is the evidence for that sufficient? I wouldn't think so. The problem with lithium is it can be easily overdosed and people who are treated with lithium for psychiatric diseases are always on the verge of overdosing and the side effects are kind of dangerous. The drinking water lithium is 10,000 times lower, but still, I would definitely not recommend to anyone on a personal basis, try to obtain lithium and, and try it out. Chances are you overdose it significantly.
1: So there does appear to be consistent evidence that some amount of lithium does seem to be a good thing for longevity, but you can overdo it. So there we just don't know where that sweet spot is yet and how exactly to dose it. But if you have a higher amount in your water, then that seems to be a good thing. But it's still a very low amount relative to a dosing schedule that somebody that would take it for psychiatric issues.
0: Exactly. Okay. So yeah. don't go for the pills, that is way too much. And if you find drinking water or mineral water that contains a certain amount of lithium, that's certainly safe and that's totally unproblematic and maybe even healthy.
1: So I interviewed Neil Copes a while back and he had done work directly on C. elegans looking at the mechanism of action for beta-hydroxybutyrate extending yeah. life. Basically, there's two different mechanisms by which it seems to do so. The activation of FOXOF4 and also NRF2 pathway. So again, that seems to be mediated by the production of reactive oxygen species through the metabolism of beta-hydroxybutyrate through the mitochondria. So again, we're seeing a lot of things coalescing. And Have you had a chance to look into ketogenic diet yourself? And what are your thoughts on it?
0: We have personally not not actively studied that but I'm in contact with different labs including Eric Verdin Mm -hmm. and I find that work very fascinating since it's absolutely matching my perspective on reactive oxygen species NRF interaction and actually O and some of our studies also show up so I think it's a very important nutritional intervention which has been underrated for many decades and finally it's getting the attention it should have had a long time ago and I fully endorse the results and I'm very curious with where this is going and whether it will change a societal approach to nutrition. I'm pretty sure for subsets this will apply and I think scientifically it's all not fully resolved but the data that is available certainly is very
1: promising. So lastly, what are some of the things that your lab is currently investigating? What are some of the questions that you are looking into at the moment?
0: Yeah, so, What we started a really long time ago is to identify genes and by that also methods to modulate these genes by being beat compounds on nutrition that are regulating longevity in very different organisms. So we compared lower organisms like flies or worms with mice and then also with human cells, then distilled out of this huge data set a rather small list of candidates. And so one thing we're doing is working individually on genes in this list. Then on the next level we work on transcription factors similar to NRF2 that regulate these genes altogether or at least a major portion of that, all of which is not published. And there is at least two very interesting candidates and we also have have a number of natural compounds contained in daily food and certain vegetables and so forth that very specifically work through these transcription factors. And once this is established now, we can anticipate that there will be more factors coming to really target that on top of the established ones like FOXO and NRF2. And thirdly, we work on other projects that are rather free-floating related to questions that are still not properly being addressed. For example, why do protein aggregates cause Alzheimer's and other diseases? How can this be modulated? Is it linked to ROS and things like that? But these are rather not by relevance, but by number of people working on that side project. So the main focus is genetic pathways and then more importantly, transcription factors that modulate these pathways and nutritional and other interventions by natural compounds how to
1: modulate them. I really appreciate your approach of looking at natural compounds because at the end of every paper that I read on this subject, it's always maddening to see the last sentence or two say, and hopefully we can come up with some synthetic drug candidate targets. I understand the pressures in order to do that. As we discussed, research takes a lot of money to get there and if nobody can benefit at the end of it, who's going to do that work? But at the same time, if we find compounds that increasingly target some of these pathways like PPAR gamma and the coactivators with increasing strength, then that also might create a situation where we're creating a condition that might have more harm than good. And so we have all of these wonderful compounds through foods. And if we have a better understanding of how they work, we can increase our appreciation that yes, we should eat a high vegetable diet over the lifespan, which is something we already know.
0: Yep, I totally endorse that. Plus we as a society and also politics should possibly reconsider their approach of treating society as a medical body. And I think the Eastern concept of rather investing into the prevention of diseases is way better than the Western approach and uh, we wait until the disease shows up and then we want to kind treat it. So people who have a healthy lifestyle and eat healthy and exercise, they already do that, but on an individual level. What about health insurances and public services endorsing that and even having incentives of promoting that, including, but not only restricted to compounds we've been talking about, which would be in the cent range per day. So absolutely no investment for the government, but the societal outcome and also the reduction in healthcare costs would be huge and everyone would profit from that.
1: I think that's a great way to end. And I appreciate all the work that you've done to come along and see things differently and be finally connected to what the actual research is saying. I respect and appreciate that. Thank you for all your contributions. Thank you for your time today. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And come visit us soon at humanos.me.